that was pretty great. Um, Glory leaned over in the middle and she was like, it's the song from Home Alone. <laughs> it was the song from Home Alone, at least part of it. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you on Christmas. I wore my red Christmas tie, which I never wear. Then I realized I look like I'm running for Congress. So, But hey, uh, I want to invite you to stand up with me as we read from God's Word. Our passage this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Congratulations. You are here. You made it. Uh, It is not every year that Christmas pops up on a Sunday morning, and I know that that can be a little bit complicated sometimes. Uh, the, The first time I became aware of that complication, I think, was back in 2005, Um, As I was starting seminary, David Wells, who was one of the well-known professors there at the time, and he'd written quite a few books on evangelical church culture and the way that it was compromising. And some of the books were were really great books, but um, because that same year in 05, a lot of the large, especially megachurches, had announced they, they wouldn't be having church on Sunday morning, he was kind of really upset about this and making, uh, talking about it. So he ended up on all the cable news channels as the guy that they were interviewing about this. And, and he made some good points uh, when he got on there to, to say why it was important to have church and why it was important to worship on Christmas. Um, this week I've heard people giving their opinions on that when they hear that we're going to have church here uh, on Sunday morning. I've heard people say things like, well, you know, if, if Jesus can come down from heaven to save you from your sins, well, you can drive across town for an hour and a half to worship him that morning. Um, but ironically, as I was reading up on this, this whole event, I, I realized that the Puritans, some of our ancestors, they really hated Christmas. In fact, when uh, Christmas would fall on a Sunday, as late as like the 1850s, they would keep their churches closed out of protest because they believed that Christmas was was that was the cultural compromise. They thought Christmas was more of a worldly holiday than a biblical holiday. And so uh, I, I was just thinking about it, and I realized that that means in very recent history, we have had Christians feeling self-righteous on both sides. <laughs> we've had Christians who are feeling very righteous about the fact that we're here and we're worshiping. And we've had Christians feeling very righteous about the fact that we are not here. <laughs> and so... Uh, if, you, if that tells you anything, I think the one thing it tells us is, we really need a Savior. And guess what? 
we have one. We're in luck. That's what we're here for today. We're here to celebrate the fact that we have a Savior. And that's what I want us to do really briefly here this morning. I want us to talk about the amazing reality that Jesus, the Son of God, entered into history. And that's what I want us to see. First, I want us to see that it is a fact of history that Jesus came. And secondly, I want us to see that his birth was a necessity. It was something that had to happen. And then finally, I want us to rejoice because it did happen. So let's let's talk about that. Jesus' birth is a fact. You know, the Bible is an amazing historical document. Sometimes we forget about that. Sometimes we take for granted how detailed the information inside the Bible actually is compared to other ancient documents like this. It is impossible to dismiss the Bible as purely myth or legend because it is filled with all kinds of verifiable facts that prove its authenticity. Do you know that? And I'm not just talking about historical accuracy. I'm not just talking about stuff from outside. But even within the Bible, there are these kind of incidental internal proofs uh, that point towards its reliability. Like, um, have you ever read... Mark, uh, the, Mark's account of the crucifixion, Mark chapter 15, verse 21. It says, uh, when he's talking about the man who carried the cross, it says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Okay, so this is the point where Mark is telling us the story of the crucifixion. And he tells the guy, Simon, who carried the cross, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay, who were Alexander and Rufus? Do we have any Bible scholars here in the room? Does it, can anybody tell me anything more about Alexander and Rufus? No, you can't. Because there is nothing more that we know about them. They are not a part of the story. They never show up in any of the accounts. So why are they in here? Well, they're in here because this was, these were known people in Mark's community at the time. This was kind of an, an ancient footnote. It was a way for Mark to say, hey, Rufus and Alexander, you know them. Well, their dad was there. Go talk to them about it. They can, they can verify this for you. Or maybe more famously, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, Paul talks about when Jesus uh, appeared after his resurrection. And he says, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So this is the same idea. This is basically Paul saying to his audience, hey, don't just take my word for it. Most of these people are still alive who saw this. You can go ask them. They can verify it for you. See, the authors of Scripture, they expected people to do some fact-checking. They expected people to ask questions and, and learn for themselves whether this really happened. But amazingly, it's not just these internal proofs, right? There are also ways that we can independently verify the Bible through history, right, through archaeology. It's funny, I had written my sermon a few days ago, but Robert mentioned this as well last night at our Christmas Eve service. But uh, Pontius Pilate, 
right? He is the person uh, who condemned Jesus to die. And uh, this is a well-known fact, but at the, 20th, the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, uh, this was something that many academics uh, thought was an error. There was no other record of Pontius Pilate, especially with that title, and so they thought, this must be wrong. They didn't have any other records of him anywhere outside of Scripture, and so they were like, well, this is an error. This is something that you don't need to believe. This is a proof that the Bible is wrong. But then, in 1961, an archaeologist discovered a fragment of a carved stone in a building. It was being used, it had been repurposed to be the stairs in this building. And when they were when the build when the stairs came apart, they found on the other side of this ancient block a note. And the note was the dedication of the original building it was a part of. Here's a picture of it. And on that stone in Greek, it says that this building was dedicated by Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And now here's what's so interesting. This thing that was a proof of the inauthenticity of the Bible is now one of the most assured proofs of its accuracy. One of my college professors, who was an atheist, an extreme skeptic of the Bible, he once told the class that the only part of the Apostles' Creed he can absolutely say with certainty is that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I mentioned that today, Christmas morning, these kind of historical proofs of the Bible, because the book we're looking at today, Luke, is probably the most, uh, the, the author who is most interested in recording the facts of history accurately and letting us know that. The introduction to Luke, uh, I got so many bookmarks in my Bible this morning because I'm all over the place. Hold on, Luke chapter 1. The introduction, here's how he starts his book. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so our passage this morning, it comes from Luke, and it opens with him telling us that all of these events took place at a very specific moment in time. He tells us that the birth of Jesus took place when Caesar Augustus was reigning. And that the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were tied to this census that Caesar Augustus had asked for. Now, in ancient times, a census, it had two purposes. Uh, when people were counted, one of the things that a census could do was it would bring awareness to uh, how many people were available for war. It was a gauge of power. When you counted the people, then you knew how many men were available to fight. But the Jewish people were exempt from battle, so that didn't really affect Joseph or his family. The second reason why you had a census was for money. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, he put it this way. He said, the census 
was an inventory of all the wealth of a region, its people, its animals, and its crops, so that the government would be able to tax people to the maximum. So for a poor people, an oppressed people, like the Jewish people were back underneath the rule of the Roman Empire, a census usually announced greater poverty and greater exploitation. So Luke, he sets up the story of Jesus' birth at this very specific moment in world history, and there is a remarkable kind of contrast that he's drawing out for us, especially if you know what's happening with the history. So here we've got Caesar Augustus, and, and I'm sure you've heard of him. Caesar Augustus is one of the most famous, well-known emperors in all of human history. He reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. And here's an inscription that was written during his lifetime by one of his subjects. Here's how people thought of Caesar Augustus. He said, Caesar was sent to us and our descendants as a savior. He has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest... Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes and dreams of earlier times. Now, amazingly, at this moment, as this great ruler who was worshipped, who was thought of as a savior, as he is forcing the residents of his territories to move all over around the empire to complete this census that would only enhance his power, as this guy seems like he's pulling all the strings, it turns out that the true king of the universe was actually orchestrating all of these events. He was moving the leaders of the world around like pawns on a chessboard. God was the one who sent Joseph out from Nazareth and back to Bethlehem back to his ancestral hometown because he was a descendant of King David. He was from the tribe of Judah. And he took his betrothed with him so that at that moment, just like the prophet had spoken hundreds of years before, from you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So while this famous emperor was using his power to oppress, in a manger, in Bethlehem, the true king had come to set people free. At that moment, the real savior was born the one who truly was God manifest, the one who had actually come to set all things in order. And his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, they are facts of history that we must come to terms with. And in order for us to do that, we need to understand why. Why it happened. Why was Jesus born? Well, his birth was a necessity. That's something I want you to see this morning. His birth was a necessity. You know, the last few services, we have spent a lot of time talking about how Jesus came. You might remember 
probably two weeks ago now, we talked about how Jesus was a king, but he came as a servant. We talked about the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ, how he stepped out of heaven down to earth, and then down to a miserable life, and then down to the grave, and then down to being under the power of death for three days. We spoke last night about the incarnation, about how he was God, but he took on flesh, and he truly became a man in, in every way. And to say the incarnation is mysterious, I mean, that's a major understatement. Now, there, there's another big miracle that we always talk about in the gospel, that's the resurrection, right? The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. If Christ was not raised, then our faith is useless. But the incarnation, it's equally astounding that an eternal God, an almighty and all-powerful God could limit himself into a human form, that he could limit himself in, in such a way. It's impossible to get our minds around that. How can an eternal God become human? That he would come and, and live and, and operate within side of our human history. It's confounding. That he would be born an infant, fragile and weak. And that he would grow and, and learn and live a human life. I mean, wow. But as we think about how that happened, maybe this morning we should just reflect on why it happened. And it happened because the Bible tells us it was necessary. It happened because it had to happen. And, and let me just very quickly point out two reasons why it had to happen. The first reason why it had to happen is for our own understanding. It had to happen for our own understanding. right? This is a happy day for a lot of us, right? Are you excited about today? It's Christmas. Come on. A lot of us are happy today. We got, we're getting presents. Maybe we're, we've already gotten some presents. We're, we're going to eat too much today. We're having a party, right? But I also recognize that for some of us, Christmas can be a painful time as well. You know, Christmas can be a reminder of loved ones who are no longer with us. That there's absences in our lives. That there's pain. That there's heartache. And even if we somehow manage to get some distraction from it today, tomorrow we're going to be back into the world. We're going to be reminded that this is just a messed up and broken place where we live. There were lots of stories in the news about Zelensky coming into Congress this week. You know, it's a thunderous applause. But isn't that a very complicated scene? You know, we're all reminded when he shows up of just how afraid we are of World War III of nuclear war, of, of what disasters that will bring. And, and I think generally, we all want to see Ukraine succeed. But we also realize that acting is complicated, that there's political implications, that there's economic implications. Whenever something does happen, if our country does go out and engage in global issues, then People back home remind us, well, what about our own issues that you're not thinking about? What about the, the poverty and, and racism and division in our own country? And then, of course, our nation is just one of many nations around the world. 
facing their own problems and their own issues. This place is broken. And you might be thinking, when you see scenes like that, why is God letting this happen? Why doesn't this almighty and powerful God just swoop down and end all this suffering? Why does he allow the pain in this world and the pain in my life to continue? Well, I can't give you a definitive answer for that this morning, but, but uh, I can say this. The incarnation gives us at least a part of the answer. It shows us that we have a God who cares. The reason God allows the pain in this world to continue is certainly not because he is callous and distant and unfeeling. He's not indifferent to our pain. He is not indifferent to our suffering. He is not sitting idly by while all these things go on. He cares deeply. He cares so much, in fact, that today we are remembering that he entered into this world and endured our suffering firsthand. The incarnation is incredible because only in Christianity do we have a God who isn't separated from the pain in the world. That swaddled baby that we see in those nativity scenes, right? He didn't come to dwell in an ivory tower. We have a God who has proven how much he cares by coming as a man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief, who endured the most extreme misery that this world has to offer so that one day you and I, by faith, can be freed from it forever. The incarnation was necessary for our understanding. It helps us to make sense of this terrible world that we live in. It shows us that we have a God who cares enough to act in history and a God who promises that he's coming to act again. Now, secondly, the incarnation is necessary for our substitution. See, the real reason Jesus had to come was because we failed. We are the children of Adam, the man who rebelled against God and, and ruined it for everybody. <laughs> but We've done our own part, haven't we? Ever since, we have, each one of us, added to the pain and heartache of this world. We haven't done the things that God has asked us to do. And we have done the things he's commanded us not to do. If you've got presents waiting for you under the tree, it's a beautiful gift. But it's also a reminder about how we turn the good gifts that God gives us into little idols to worship. We've rejected him, put other things at the center of our lives. We've earned his wrath. We deserve to be judged. And so, God came so he could take our place. He became one of us so he could stand in for us. And as beautiful as that manger seems and as brutal as the cross is, the reason God came is because that's what was needed for your salvation. 
there was no other way. God incarnate, righteousness in the flesh. God became like us. And on the cross, he was given all of our sin. He was given our punishment. He was given our death so that we could become like him by faith. You know, one of the best verses to explain this is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So it was necessary so that you and I could be made righteous. There was no other way so that we could be welcomed in. If this is your faith this morning, it means that you are loved, that you are secured, that your righteousness is not based on what you've done this week, but what he did. It means that you have the full assurance this morning that it is finished. It was necessary. And so finally this morning, the application is really simple. Let's rejoice because it happened. You know, today marks the first day of Christmas. And that means it is a time to celebrate. It is a day to rejoice. And you know what? Our world is ready for a party, isn't it? You got some presents today or you've got some coming. There's maybe something, some great meal, some great activity that you're looking forward to with your family. I made, you know, I went crazy with the slides today, guys. I don't know if you've noticed. More than three. Well, here's a special one for you. Tom Brady is playing football today. Steph Curry is playing basketball, right? There's a lot of things that could put you in a good mood this morning. Well, I want to encourage you, lean into that feeling. But keep going. Let's really celebrate. Don't just stop at the shallow stuff. I want you to rejoice today. Because we have been given a gift far better than anything that's waiting for us under that tree. You know, I asked my kids this morning, look at all these presents we've got. What are you going to be doing with them 10 years from now? And they said, well, they'll be in the trash. (laughs) And they're right. They will be in the trash. But this gift is one that lasts forever. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 40, when, when the prophet was saying what this means for us, he says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service is over, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand. It says the birth of Christ means your deliverance is here. Your warfare is over. You can stop striving. So today, I want you to let loose the joy. Right? We're going to sing Go Tell It on the Mountain in a little bit. I want you to let it rip when we sing it. It was necessary for Christ to come, and he has come. Let's party, guys. The past few years, I have reconnected with the celebrating the 12 days of Christmas. And I want to encourage you here to, to think about doing that yourself. Uh, you know, I never really knew what that was growing up. Probably, like most people, I just knew it from what must be the weirdest Christmas song that's ever been written, right? I read this entire Wikipedia page this week, and you know what I found out? Nobody knows what this song is about. Nobody knows why it's all birds and leaping lords and milking maids. It doesn't make any sense. But I did find out that 
the 12 days of Christmas is a celebration that the church has participated in since at least the 6th century. And what it is, is, it's pretty simple. It's just starting today, going all the way till January 6th, it is a time for us to continue reflecting on what the Bible calls this good news of great joy for all the people. So tomorrow, the radio stations, they're all going back to pop music, right? Mariah Carey is going into hibernation until next year. But this is the chance for us as the church to reflect on why this season exists in the first place. While the rest of the world moves on, we get a chance for the next few days to press in. So I want to encourage you, leave your lights up this week. Leave the tree out. Keep the Christmas carols playing. In fact, turn them up extra loud. And then when somebody comes and asks you why you're still listening to that stuff, you can tell them it's because your Savior has come. And he deserves more than one morning. But seriously, I I do want you to rejoice. I want you to connect with that joy today. And I want you to share it with other people this week. Because isn't that how we just naturally do things? If something brings us joy, don't we tell others? You see a good movie and you say, hey, you got to go check out this movie. You find a a good recipe and you're like, hey, you got to try this recipe. It's a wonderful thing. Well, delight yourself in the Lord today and share that delight with others. Because on this day, or approximately this day, a few thousand years ago, in a small town on the other side of the world, when the great emperor, Caesar Augustus, was sitting on the throne, the real king showed up. And he became a servant so that we could be set free. And we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of great joy for all the people. And we thank you that we get a chance to celebrate that you put this day on the calendar for us, and we get to focus on your provision. Lord, as we open these gifts, help us set our sights on the true gift today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.